0: Welcome to the italian wine podcast i'm cynthia chaplin and this is voices every wednesday i will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals discussing issues in diversity equity and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine if you enjoy the show please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods Hello, everybody. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and I'm very happy to welcome you all to Voices Today. I have Maya Della Valle from Della Valle Vineyards in California with me today, which is a great treat. And thank you, Maya, for joining me because I know you're in New York for a couple of days. Della Valle is recognized as one of Napa's preeminent family run wineries ever since it was founded in 1986 by Maya's parents. They're in Oatville and Rutherford and Napa and they've earned huge acclaim as one of the world's most celebrated wine estates in the New World. Maya herself has a master's degree in viticulture and analogy from Cornell, as well as a master's of business and science in vineyard and winery management from Bordeaux Science Agro, and she joined her family's winery as a director in 2017 at the age of 30. So, welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you so much for making time for us today.
1: Thank you so much, Cynthia, for having me and for the really kind introduction.
0: No, it's my great pleasure um, I'm I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I, I love I have four daughters. I love young women who are, you know, successful and driven and smart and talented and working hard. So this is one of my my happy kinds of interviews. So I just wanted to kick off this interview. I have got to ask you, I mean, no pressure really to become a winemaker when the family's most famous vineyard is named after you, right?
1: <laughs> no pressure at all.
0: Maya's vineyard was was, you know, on your estate and, and your parents named it for for you after you were born. What was that like? Was it like a pleasure or a burden when you were growing up? You know, what What made your parents start a winery? And, and why on earth did they name it after you, you poor kid?
1: <laughs> I don't know, lack of imagination, maybe? <laughs> no, okay. Well, for me, you know, since I was born, and since I could read and comprehend, you know, that wine has always been in existence. And my parents were very clear from the beginning that, you know, they love me very much. And that is why they named this, you know, special wine after me, but it was not my wine. And it was meant to be, you know, something very separate from the identity of who I am as a person. So I think that stuck very strongly since the beginning. So I never really thought much of it because it, it was always clear that it was two separate things. And then, you know, going back even further to why my parents decided to start a winery was originally they came to the Napa Valley with the intention of uh, doing a Relay on Chateau type of business, so a hotel restaurant, and uh, had a hard time finding the the right spot to, to do that because... We are inside of an agricultural preserve where most of the land is reserved specifically for agricultural use. So, in the meantime, um, they had found this property that was up on the hill, and my father, being Italian, wanted to be always, you know, on the hillside, up above with a nice view. So they fell in love with this property, and it happened to have a little bit of grapes planted. And my mom always jokes, it's like stepping on a banana peel and sliding the industry because, okay, you have these grapes. And my father one day decided that we were going to make wine to my mom's shock and the awe. She's like, we don't know how to make wine. And then it's like, okay, well, let's plant more grapes. Okay, now we need a winery. Let's build the winery. And then just kind of, it just kind of grew from there. So uh, a lot of you know, trial and error in the beginning, but they were very fortunate to, you know, have success early on.
0: Well it's like the, the famous Kevin Cosner line in the baseball movie. If you if you build it, they'll come.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. Exactly. That would be uh, definitely was their mentality.
0: Exactly. But so your dad your dad was Italian and your mom is Japanese. So mm-hmm. they were both not from America. You're the first generation American. I mean yes. Besides being sort of with this winery named after you. You had a really interesting kind of position in your family. How how did all of this kind of inform your childhood growing up?
1: Well, it was very interesting. I mean, those are two obviously very different cultures, but somehow there's a lot of alignment between the Italian and Japanese cultures, especially around the culture of food.
0: For sure, for sure.
1: Yeah, I grew up, you know, with a great appreciation of both cuisines. And uh, funnily enough, my Mom, um, before my parents got married, my dad insisted that she needed to learn how to cook uh Italian dishes and specifically Venetian dishes because he is from Sara Grappa. So Oh my god. <laughs> he yeah. So my mom went and spent time in Bassano with my uh great aunt and you know, my aunt didn't speak any English and my mom didn't speak any Italian, so they would just be going to the market together, pointing, and kind of by showing and by cooking and doing, she learned all of these, you know, dishes like bacala, la vincentina, and osobuco, and she makes her own tiramisu from scratch. And, you know, I grew up very centered around, you know, all these dishes, both Italian and Japanese, and having a deep appreciation for food and also also for wine. I was exposed to it from a a very young age. And my parents always wanted me to taste and learn about, you know, how wine was made and, and the culture around that.
0: That's, that's such a great way to grow up. I mean, sort of, I think food is its own language and it, it really does have that power to cross so many boundaries. You know, when you can't actually speak to one another, you can still do meaningful things together if you can speak food. And and, and wine's often like that too. So um, what a great what, what a great way for your mom to get integrated in the family and for you to grow up. I mean, I'm in Verona, so bacalao <laughs> vichensei. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: yeah. That's a lot—a labor of love. That dish.
0: It is, it is, and especially trying to get those ingredients in California must have been something of a challenge. So that's dedication for you.
1: Yeah, a lot of suitcase smuggling, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, um, that still goes on. I am a culprit. So, I mean, unfortunately, you you lost your dad at a very young age in 1992, right around the time that the Maya wine got its 100 points from Robert Parker. And I know, luckily, your dad knew about that before he died. So that's that's very nice to have in your heart. I'm just wondering, how did his death affect your outlook on the winery? Obviously, your mother had to take it all on herself. So what happened at that point for the two of you?
1: So, I mean, I, at that time, it was it was the end of, it was December of 95. So I was eight years old. I think that's the age where you just start to comprehend what death means. So, you know, it was just a lot of watching my mom, you, you know, being a uh, first generation American and actually no one else in our either side of the family. Uh, moved to the U.S. So she was really alone in that sense uh, with, you know, her child and a business and she was forced with this decision, you know, do I sell it and go back to Japan or do I stay? And I think in her mind at that point, she had developed such a love and passion for wine growing and also for the community felt, you know, a lot like our extended family and they really came in and you know embraced us and supported us through that really difficult time but
0: wine people are so good that way they really are very very generous of spirit
1: yes absolutely and so she felt motivated and i don't think it really ever crossed her mind to sell the property and just watching her take it on and you know take the business to the next level was really admirable and for me built this really strong foundation of this role model and You know, I grew up never thinking, oh, because I'm a woman, I'm going to be limited or I'm going to face these challenges. I just, you know, you just do it and you can do it successfully. And it was never even a question of if she was capable or not. So I felt very fortunate to be able to watch my mom build the business. And also probably it also inspired me Subliminally, to take a thought about coming back into the wine business because I, originally, growing up, I wasn't interested in, in being part of it. And when I it was really when I left for university that I started thinking about the sentimental value of our of our vineyard and uh, our winery and what my parents had started together and keeping that connection to my father, even though he was no longer with us.
0: Uh, of course, I mean it's. It, I think that's true for for a lot of people. You don't really understand home until you leave it to go do something else. Um, and, it, and it suddenly looks a lot more attractive in your rear view mirror than it did when you were standing there every day. But uh,
1: Absolutely.
0: It's, and, you know, your mom too, you know, no pressure on her. I'm sure there was, you know, she had, she couldn't sell that vineyard. She'd named it after her child, be like selling a child. Yeah,
1: it is like her other, yeah, it is almost like her other child. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, before you actually got into the business, you, you went off to university and you wanted to do something else. What did you want to do instead? Please tell me you wanted to be a ballerina or something really off track from walk.
1: No. Well, I mean, I grew up riding horses and I was very seriously competitive in dressage and there, the thought crossed my mind for a moment, but it, I don't think I ever really seriously entertained the idea of becoming a professional in that field. But I was interested. I studied international relations in college, and um, I was interested in, you know, eventually working for NGO or to do foreign service um, because of my international background. I always had this desire to to travel and stay connected to, you know, the around the world. So that was originally my interest in college, but
0: Well, and both, both really good disciplines for going back to your winery. I mean, one of my daughters is very much involved in the horse world. And it's, there's a lot of determination that has to be there and discipline and international relations is something that changes every day. So you have to have a brain that works pretty fast. You know, when did you get to that point where you said, you know, actually, I'm going to take a look at going back into this wine business thing.
1: I think it was about midway through college, I started to really think about seriously about what I wanted to do. Also, it was the recession impending. So I had started to take on some internships, you know, in the marketing and business side. I even dabbled in working in hospitality uh, at the tasting room at Robert Mondavi. And I learned that probably wasn't my favorite thing. Good family connections. (laughs) By the time I graduated it was full on recession 2009. So what can you always do? You can always work harvest. So it was working harvest at Nyers Vineyards um, that really sealed the deal for me for what I wanted to do.
0: Wow, that's, that's so cool. That is such an interesting point. When there's recession, you can still always work in agriculture. Yes. I think that's, that's such a relevant point right now, because of course, with COVID, it was, I'm not Quite clear on how things went in California, but certainly in Europe, we lost that sort of migrant workforce that that takes those jobs when there aren't other jobs available. And now, uh, with the war in Ukraine, we're not too sure what our harvest is going to look like this summer. So that's a really interesting point, actually, that those agricultural jobs are there, and you have to be sort of uh, insightful to understand how valuable that is, really.
1: Yes, and I mean during COVID, we we're considered essential workers. So, you know, we were really unaffected in that sense from the pandemic because we never had to close or shut down. Um, We were able to continue, you know, working in the vineyards and in the cellar uninterrupted. So uh, it was nice to have that um, sense of stability during the pandemic.
0: For sure. Absolutely. For sure. And especially because there you know so many other issues going on with climate change and fire and, and different things like that. It's nice to have at least that sort of reassurance that what you're doing is is valuable and lucrative and meaningful to the economy of where you live. So really, really important. I hadn't really gotten there in the way I was at looking at um, talking to you today, but those are really <laughs> interesting points uh, and, and really relevant, really relevant. So you, you finally joined the company full on in 2017 and you started working full time with your mom and she has said that she secretly always hoped that would be the case someday. So, you know, good job on you for making your (laughs) They're happy. How's it going working together now? You know, she was in charge for so many years after your dad died, and she knows your estate obviously extremely well. How have you two combined your strengths? I think,
1: you know, of course, there's always challenges to being in a family business, but the advantages really outweigh uh, the challenges. So I think, you know, the biggest challenge I would say working together is learning to separate the personal and professional side and learning to work with you know from both sides i can imagine for my mom it's it was very challenging to you know consider your daughter as your colleague and see them in a professional way not just your daughter your child and then you know for me i had formal training for winemaking and grape growing so I came in with more of a technical aspect, which my mom encouraged um, since she was never able to have a formal training in that. And, just, you know, she believes very heavily in education because she, she always says, you know, that's
0: the one thing no one can ever take away from you. I think everybody's parents say that. I uh, My parents said it to me and I certainly say it to my children. It's very true, of course, as well.
1: It is very true. You know, there's very few things in life like that. So um, I think that also helps, you know, playing to our different strengths. So I am learning more now about the business side from her um, and then bringing in some technical aspects and changing very minor things or just adding more data and organization into the the production side. So I think we can both learn from each other. And it's great because you both share the same passion. Our name is on the line at the end of the day. So, you know, you want it to be, represent the best product possible
0: that is a very good point I, I always respect winemakers who put their own name on the label or uh, have clear glass bottles in the cases of white wines or rose because it does show you know that you really believe in what you're doing if you're willing to put your name on it that's that says a lot about who you are and, and what your wine is and what it means to you so I, I get the responsibility of that it's it's interesting because I know before you officially came into the dalla Valley winery as a partner, you know, as your mother's colleague, you spent a lot of time getting some good hands-on experience in some pretty rarefied places like Petrus and Chateau Latour and Ornellaia and Masetto, which are all old world winemaking experiences, mostly in in Italy and France. I'm sure your dad must have been smiling down on you. (laughs) I hope so. I'm sure. I'm sure. How did these old world experiences kind of affect you and your philosophy about winemaking because very different places from Napa
2: thank you for listening to Italian Wine Podcast From July 1st to the 31st, and click the link. We thank you and back to the show.
1: Yes, I think, I mean, it was highly influential, I think, on my, you know, personal winemaking philosophies today. Um, It also confirmed a lot of things, you know, that we were already doing on our estate, Um, you know, focusing on doing our own farming and, um, really spending most of the year and efforts in farming and um, really being very precise in everything you do. And then also with winemaking, you know, always having this philosophy of maintaining balance in the wines and, you know, not trying to make something over the top and really showy, but something that's really meant to go with food and to be enjoyed as part of a meal, a very experiential, you know, not making the wine the meal. So for me, it was a lot of just confirmation of things that we were already doing at home. And, and then also just bringing out a little bit of, you know, elevated techniques. So with biodynamic farming, for example, I learned a lot about that and had firsthand experience while working in Bordeaux. And just thinking, you know, seeing the value of old vineyards and old vines and really translating that into our vineyard, which now, you know, fortunately we've already had to do one full round of replanting and my hope is now to be able to maintain those vines and not have to do another round of replanting and be able to have, you know, 50, 60-year-old vines and really see the value in that. So I think that's one of the big philosophies and takeaways I, I took from from the old world to, to our um, estate now.
0: It's, it's, a, it's a legit goal also these days. And the, the value of old vines is becoming more and more recognized. So, you know aiming for that in California, I think is a, a really exceptional goal. Definitely something, a good takeaway from, from France and from Italy. I know you started collaborating with Axel Heinz, the wine director from Ornelia. Good choice, by the way. Yes. <laughs> what What's the objective of this collaboration? What is Axel bringing to Dalla Valle? And I'm sure you're sharing things with him as well. I love young winemakers because they do have different perspectives. So how's the the symbiosis going there? It's
1: been going really, really well. I mean, Axel obviously is a highly respected and very talented winemaker. So I feel very
0: You could say that, yes, you could
1: to say the least. So for me, I mean it's kind of been a dream to be able to do this collaboration because I feel from my end being yeah, being a young winemaker you know, I can push all these ideas and, you know, rock his brain about things. And with his experience and knowledge, I feel like I am constantly being learning more and more um, just by working together. And, you know, I really admire and respect all the work that he's done. And so to be able to make and collaborate on something new in Napa has been really exciting and just a really creative and innovative way to work you know outside of what we do at our estate
0: so, well, let's talk about these wines. Let's let's get down to the fun part here now. So, so I know Maya is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. What other grapes are you growing? What are you doing with Axel? What have you got in mind for for new um, vineyards, new blends? What's what's coming up for you?
1: So, currently for DVO, we work with Cabernet Sauvignon, of course, and then uh, always Cabernet Franc as well. And then more recently, we've found a um, little uh, Merlot vineyard that we really loved um, and just start, of course, because, you know, Masato does Merlot better than, you know, anyone. some of the best Merlot in the world. Yeah, I know. So being able to work with these grapes together has been, uh, yeah, has been really fun and different, you know, working for me, being able to work in vineyards outside of our own estate and exploring different AVAs and um, I think for Axel too, he comes normally three times a year. I think now we're in a safe enough place pandemic wise where he can return to coming at that frequency and being able to walk the vineyards together and taste the wines. And you know, during during a harvest we're working every day together. I'm, you know, WhatsApp is a great tool to have, especially so now that they're out in the world, it's uh, really even more exciting to be able to open and to share them.
0: What what have the recent vintages been like for you in Napa? I mean, there's drought, there's fire. Have you had problems with smoke taint? You know, how do you envision preparing for, for the future in light of, you know, climate change is here. We have to find the advantages and work around the disadvantages, you know, how, how has it been for you in the past couple of years? Yeah. Well,
1: my first year back was 17, which was the first year of fires. That was pretty stressful and definitely nothing that I had been prepared for in my training. So it was a, it was a new, um, challenge that has, you know, come to light and now is seemingly becoming, you know, part of, part of, making wine in Napa. So uh, it's all about adapting to uh, learning about research, collaborating with universities, trying to understand smoke taint more because it is a very nuanced topic.
0: Yeah, I know UC Davis is doing a lot with it now.
1: They, yeah, UC Davis does a lot. Australia is the, is the authority currently on smoke taint and other universities like Fresno State and Washington State are also doing a lot of work uh, research on this topic. But I mean, us as a winery, we were very fortunate not to have been affected by smoke taint um, in any of the recent vintages. Um,
0: oh, I'm so glad to hear that.
1: Yeah, thank you. We feel extremely lucky because that was that was very painful, especially in 2020. We already had the pandemic. It was already felt strained and stressful due to that and trying to adapt. And then on top of it, just having this fire appear in mid August, and then another one at the end of September. It was just, you know, it felt pretty wiped out by the by the end of the year.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been working in wine for over 20 years, and it was, you know, the past couple of years have just been a series of bad news in the wine world, which wine generally tends to be a fairly joyful place to work. And uh, I know. I can only imagine how difficult it was for you. So I'm really glad that. Dal Valley wasn't affected. That's great, and I hope that it isn't in the future. So we'll keep Thank our you. fingers crossed. The other thing I want to ask you about is: you're young, and your generation, and and people who are younger than you, sort of the age of my kids, who are all in their twenties, are just really not drinking as much wine as previous generations. Data is showing us these days. How are you marketing to younger consumers, or or people who are just completely new to wine? You know, there's a lot of snobbiness out there and barriers language and um, things like that that keep younger people out. How are you combating that and reaching out to that audience?
1: Uh, you know, I always consider Napa Valley to be a, a classic, not a trend maker or trendy wine. And I agree with that. Yeah, I think, you know, people always return to classics. I think there's, there's this constant panic, you know, around yeah younger people who aren't drinking as much and they're not drinking Napa wine. Like, how do we get them to drink Napa wine? And for me, I just think, you know, eventually they'll return to the classics. People always return to the classics. So a lot, you know, maybe they're drinking more, you know, trendy natural wines or off dry wines or, you know, whatever, as long as they're drinking wine. And I feel like, you know, looking at a lot of you know my friends who aren't in the wine industry, who aren't really big wine drinkers, they're still drinking like those kinds of beverages. And I think eventually as your palate evolves that you will seek something different or try to learn more about wine and that will inevitably bring you back to the classics like Napa. So for us, I don't feel too much stress about that and I feel like it's as long as you are authentic and you are transparent about what you do, you know, we farm organically and biodynamically, we are very open about How we make the wines. And I think people are attracted to that and will naturally gravitate towards, you know, people with a passion and are showing what they're doing and, and is trying to be sustainable as well. Because I think that's a big topic, as, you know, with climate change is very apparent and here and trying to make an impact and set yourself apart. I think that's a very natural way to market and talk about your wine as an agricultural product and that'll inevitably bring younger consumers to to our brand.
0: I think you make a really good point there and I I like this concept of as long as they're drinking wine their palate will evolve. I think that's that's a very cool concept that people don't really talk about as you say there is this, you know, huge sense of nervousness young people aren't drinking wine but I I like that. thought. as long as they're drinking some kind of wine, they will eventually come back to the classic and you are ready for them and waiting and building a reputation as being sustainable and, you know, organic and biodynamic. I think that's a very smart approach, which I don't think a lot of people are taking. I think a lot of the wine market is pretty reactive to these numbers that we're seeing about young people not drinking drinking wine. And I, I like the fact that you have enough sort of zen to just <laughs> say, no, I'm not I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to be authentic and, and be transparent and just keep doing what I already do well. I think that's very smart.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I feel, I mean, I myself am a millennial um, on the older end of the millennial side, but I see it firsthand and it's funny like I feel like every, there's so much speculation around it like most recently I was in a a group meeting and it was mostly older people in the wine industry. I think I was the only millennial in the room and like they're all talking like how are we going to get younger people to drink wine and bubble blah, and blah, blah. like I'm right here like you can ask <laughs> me directly. I I am a millennial. And I think like people get so bogged down with data and if you think about, you know, the emergence of wine culture in the US you know that didn't really emerge till the i would say the 90s and no one was taking data on who was drinking wine into this level
0: of detail no absolutely i grew up in ohio in the 60s and my parents didn't drink wine so yeah i think you're you're absolutely right you've put your finger on it and wine culture in america is still a pretty young thing so trying to extrapolate from data is, you know, potentially not the best way forward. It's it's interesting again, because the US is a very different market from Europe. And I think we tend to forget that sometimes. So I feel very reassured to hear someone of your age saying, don't worry about it. My friends are drinking some sort of wine. They'll come back and find me eventually. <laughs> So, you know, what are your dreams and your plans for the winery and for your estate as a whole? You're looking at at some other kinds of grapes, some other vineyards. You know, what do you want to do to add your own imprint onto the brand? Have you got some new projects on the horizon that you are hoping to bring into the light?
1: I think I have my hands pretty full between Dalavalle and DVO. So, I think right now it's, you know, my focus is really on the the transition to to farming biodynamically, and I don't know. I I don't necessarily have a plan to, you know, make an imprint of my imprint into the estate. I think it's a lot for me about respecting and acknowledging what my parents' vision was, and sharing that vision, and kind of guiding the wines and the vineyards towards, you know being having age and showing expression of the site and really focusing a focus has always been on the vineyard and inevitably whoever is making a wine of course the style is going to evolve and be slightly different but every vintage that you have from our estate And taste and drink, there is always this continuity of a sense of place. And I think uh, for me, it's my responsibility to continue to maintain that. And then it becomes, you know, my personal interpretation, of course, of what that means. But that's kind of the the beauty of winemaking. So I can't say uh, necessarily that I have a vision to... For myself, I think right now I'm very focused on, on guiding the, the vineyard and the estate in our team.
0: I think your old world experience has, has touched you more than you know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Clearly a woman endowed with enormous patience. And I like your sense of being a caretaker and that you're not rushing in to change it up. You, you're you respecting what's been sitting there for 30 years and, and going fairly well, it has to be. Oh, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One of the iconic wines of, of that part of California. So it's nice to hear, again, as I say, I have a lot of respect for young winemakers and I like a lot of the new things they want to do, but it's very nice to hear your patience and sort of your measured approach to what you're doing. Thank you. Life is long. I think
1: or I think early on in the first year or two I was back, I kind of came in like really chomping at the bit, wanting to do things and then realizing that, you know, this is a long game. Like, you know, I'm only 34 years old. So I still have a long time to make these wines and uh, to run the business. So I know this is my mom's, you know, second child. So I am totally fine. Like as long as she wants to be in charge and oversee everything. I respect that because it's her passion and I share that. And I still, you know, I know it won't be forever that we'll be able to work together. So I, I appreciate these moments now.
0: That's really, that's really nice. Again, generosity of spirit in, in wine people. There's a perfect example it. Plus it's just, it's just nice that, um, you know, you, you have that that approach to it you know nothing happens in the wine world very fast anyway so i think people who who want to make change really quickly are often very disappointed so or or go the wrong way and end up with a bad product so you're undoubtedly doing your estate a lot of service by taking your time and, and finding your way so before i let you go today i have got to ask especially given your dad's family background and your mom's time spent in italy what is your favorite Italian wine?
1: This is going to sound like a really um, cop out answer, but or- the and Moseto wines are really my favorite wine.
0: Well, I kind of, I was kind of betting on that because you probably get in a lot of trouble if you didn't say that. But, uh, yeah. but it's <laughs> no, to be but fair; it's a good from, choice, Maya. Honestly,
1: yeah. Apart from you know the relationship we have, you know, I I think probably I was able, I had the opportunity to work harvest there in thirteen. I know the team very well. I respect highly what they do. And uh, having that personal connection to the wine, of course, makes it that much more special and unique. But what they do is really fantastic.
0: Trisha, and their, their grapes align with yours as well. So that has a lot to do with it. And that's, I think that's nice that you found that bridge across the, you know, two continents and, and across sort of the old world, new world style. So I'm not disappointed you said Ornelia. <laughs> I don't think okay. that's a cop out at all.
1: <laughs> okay, good. I will say, you know, my favorite um, white wine from Italy is the uh, Benanti Pietra Marina.
0: Oh, yeah. Etna. Good choice. Yeah, yeah, I
1: absolutely love.
0: I, I that's a good one too. Yeah, and and really emerging, I think, still undervalued. So yes, a great a great wine with some potential for age, and and that's fun in Italy with white wines, seeing those ageable whites coming out now and getting some recognition. So yeah, Benante all the way. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> and more affordable than Ornelia, it has to be said. Yes, it's true.
1: I can't, I'm, I myself cannot drink Ornelia every day. So that is a good backup.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciated it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it's it's just lovely to get your perspective on, on what's happening in California and what you're, you're doing there and having you know, such an integral role in your family's vineyard from the time you were tiny all the way up till today. So um, we wish you all the very best. And I hope that we will get to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitoli Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at benetiliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.